Well, on Rebuilders today, we are moving back towards talking about discipleship, our mini-series, The Opening Door to Renewal. What is happening today? Well, we're going to be transitioning out of, I think, the really important discussion that we've begun over the last two weeks, talk about civilizational states, Mm -hmm. the shift from a pluralistic society to a much more contested civilizational space. We're going to be looking at how that affects discipleship. And uh, I think that it brings challenges, but actually some really good challenges because we begin to have an honest discussion about where our true authority and what we worship really lies. Excellent. Looking forward to it. If you want to know more about uh, the resources that we mentioned during the episode, you can subscribe to our mailing list, rebuilders.co. Let's get into it. Yeah. Hi, welcome to Rebuilders. My name is Liddy and I'm here with Mark and Daniel. We've got Daniel back. Woo-hoo. Welcome back, Daniel. Thank you. It's good to be back. To um, being real life in the room. Yeah. I Look, I did my darndest last week trying to do it from home. From oh, you bedroom. did well. Oh, I don't think did anyone an noticed. Job. That all my voice wasn't there for one yeah. thing. But Yeah, I, I think, mean, people definitely <laughs> noticed that. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think. Well, it was gone from screaming at us <laughs> down the phone. <laughs> Press the button. <laughs> no, but I'm doing much better. Thank you for your um, letting me work from home last week. Oh, yes. I, Thank you for yeah. letting me work whilst horribly sick. Yeah, no, I was recovering. I was, on, I, was on the, I was on the better side. I just, I needed to recover still. You yeah. moved from intensive care unit into <laughs> just, just a normal ward. Yeah. Was mm. it a, was it off pastry? No, it was, uh, I think it was just a, Hangover, oh, not a hangover. literal hangover, a, a hangover of a- A cake hangover. A cake, a cake hangover, cake yes, hangover. yes. Yeah. I had my birthday Monday. I think I ate four pieces of cake throughout the wow. day, which is- Wow. Was that pasted. just like a quarter yeah, yeah. of one whole <laughs> cake? Like, okay, well, divided quarter, it's like Homer Simpson. Quarter, quarter. <laughs> <laughs> so it was four pieces, but really it was just a whole cake. It, um, I, I, no comment. Oh, yes. <laughs> no, no, of course not. Uh, okay, I'm, sure. I'm measured, except on my birthdays. Yeah, and then yep. <laughs> you're Just out for a loose. couple of days. Out, yeah. Well, either way, it's nice to have you back and you've got a whole year to think about your actions mm. <laughs> before next year. Yeah. I'll work up to next year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you all for joining us again this week. Uh, the last two weeks we have spent some time exploring what's been happening in Ukraine uh, and I guess the broader brushstrokes of what that means in terms of culture, geopolitics and how that trickles down to uh, more local contexts and uh, leading within churches and what it looks like to be the people of God in this time. So thank you all for tuning into that. Um, Mm -hmm. We're going to take the opportunity to kind of redirect ourselves back to uh, the opening door to renewal series that we started or mini series that we started um, a number of weeks ago now. Mark, can you chat us through what the kind of plan is for Mm. the next couple of weeks? Mm. Yeah, as as mentioned, we started a series on discipleship and and looking particularly at discipleship is such a key thing, particularly coming out of a pandemic. 
pivoted obviously into Ukraine as, as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, and thanks again just to everyone who sent messages and got lots of interest and it's sort of I think it's you know, still a, and it's growing as our biggest episode ever. Um, thanks everyone. We ca- can't get back to everyone. We're running a church um, as well as this. <laughs> also baking cakes for Daniel's birthday next year yeah. <laughs> um, already. Uh, but what we're thinking of doing is uh, we're going to do – a few episodes, maybe a little bit smaller, yep. uh, on uh, just discipleship and some of the key elements we see probably throughout the next five weeks. Mm-hmm. And um, just some of the key ideas that we feel that we need to get our heads around moving forward in this new space. And some of it's going to overlap today with, I guess there's almost a, a natural a transition from what we've been talking about with civilizational states, yep. which came out of our Ukraine discussion. And then really how did that relates to what we talked about before then, which is uh, discipleship and this moment of renewal that's needed in discipleship. Um, yeah. Great. Something to very much look forward to, and we might as well just sink our teeth into it right now. Mm. You mentioned just there about civilizational states, and we talked mm. about that last year, uh, last year, last week, and the mm. emergence of more civilizational states, mm. and you've mentioned it somehow relates to discipleship. Please, mm. please string those Tell things together more. for us. <laughs> well, firstly, we set out in this um, – series on discipleship with mm. a sort of point that Dallas Willard had made that uh, what had happened after World War II, particularly um, you know, in the American church, which I think filtered across the world, was that being um, a Christian was about adhering to a certain set of doctrinal beliefs, particularly mm-hmm. if you're an evangelical uh, Christian, you know, a lot of the Protestant church, um, in reaction to what happened with liberalism and people were seen to be abandoning some of the key tenets of faith, that therefore in reaction to that, um, it became, you were born again, you're a, 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 a true blue Christian if you believe these key doctrinal issues. Mm-hmm. Again, is there nothing wrong with that? But the problem that then emerged was that that became disconnected from actually whether people were living out that faith. Mm -hmm. So you had churches which were gathered around adhering to a few key doctrinal issues. Again, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. But the problem is then when those churches are not leading people into lives of discipleship, where those beliefs then gets translated into action and life-changing action Mm. where people are becoming more like Christ. Now, that problem's been under the surface for some time. And, um, you know, people have been talking about it, but it really became clear during the pandemic Mm. when people couldn't meet in person and all of a sudden people who, you know, seemed to be solid disciples didn't come back or became radicalised to one extreme of the left or right or just sunk away uh, once that pattern of gathering people and trying to get people into your church was not there. Yeah. So after the pandemic, you know, I think there's this real thing as people regathering and less people are coming back, people are coming less often back. Um, you know, we're seeing that all across the world. Um, so the question then of that model of doing church for sort of cultural Christians or people who say, yeah, I agree with those those things, you know, that your church believes in, but I don't necessarily live them. Or maybe I just believe some of them um, and I don't live them. Uh, that, that really there was this reckoning renewal moment where the church had to move from being a gathering place for cultural Christians and hoping to move cultural Christians a little bit along this discipleship pathway uh, into, you know, how do we actually build disciples of Christ? How do we partner with Jesus as he's making people in his image, uh, remaking people in his image? Now, we spoke about last week, so that, that's what we've been talking about. Yes. In our discussion with Ukraine, we spoke about the idea that partially what's happening in the world is the idea of the world that we had 
that was the dominant ideology, I think, in the West, that the world was just moving towards this liberal democratic moment where it was about individualism. It was about an ongoing economy where the market would solve everything for us. It was about pursuing our desires that people weren't really connected to those big ideas of the past. And so the church was trying to exist in that space. In mm. that space, you're trying to get people to come to your church from all of the pleasures and wonders of the world, you know, the distractions. Um, so that's what has informed, the environment has informed um, uh, you know, a model of discipleship. So there's two things, a model of discipleship, which is more about what you believe than actually what you're living. And then secondly, is more about um, an old passing order, which is now being replaced by this idea of civilizational states where the old stuff is back, meaning, identity, uh, ethnicity, the tribal dynamics, nationality, these great struggles between these great things of meaning, which we thought had disappeared, that this is our now setting up a whole new dynamic in which we've got to live out discipleship. So mm -hmm. these, these shocks are coming together. It's making us rethink discipleship. Okay. So... We have existed in these kind of open spaces and we can do whatever we want and, you know, come to church and, and get good feelings and then do whatever we want during the week. How is that now changing? So, so one way to think about it is there's been this big paradigm shift that a lot of churches were trying to get their heads around, I think, over the last 20, 30 years, yeah. which is that we're moving from a monoculture, say, the Midlands in England in 1950 or, you know, Chicago in 1950 or New Zealand in 1962 where effectively you had a fairly monoculture yes. um, which was sort of culturally Christian, um, maybe it was secularising a little bit and um, you had that culture and then this big change happened. You know, people might start it in the 60s or the 70s or the 80s or wherever, you know, it was gaining in strength where all of a sudden we moved from this monoculture to now we're in this very multicultural, pluralistic world where people believe different things. Yes. But it was sort of very, you know, you do you. And, yeah. um, you know, it was just like you're dealing with this very sort of like soft, gooey pluralism where you try and explain the gospel to someone and their response is, oh, that's great. You believe that. I believe this. Cool. Let's go and have ice cream. Yeah. But what's happening now is it's actually moving to a much more competitive, contested space. And so what we need to realize is what our, our, our discipleship strategy before, which had those baked into it, those problems that Dallas Willard already mm. outlined, is now moving into this much more contested space. So people talk about things like the culture war. And, you know, people talk about how, you know, all of a sudden the paper is filled with articles at the moment about how we're moving into a new global order. So to understand all that change, we need to go back one step and mm -hmm. understand pluralism. Yep. So really what happened was the West and many countries of the West, but not just the West, have an idea of different cultures existing within them. And they're able to pull that off. That's like a pluralistic society. We talked last week about um, India. Yes. India, yep. um, you know, began in 1947 as an independent nation and started with this idea of secularism, but not secularism as the erasure of religion, secularism as different religions getting along. Yes. And often cultures like that, whether it's a place like India or perhaps, say, you know, the 90s or the early 2000s, we had these multicultural realities, mm. is that people develop coping strategies for dealing with the differences. Yeah, okay. Now, someone did send us uh, an email with a really interesting point they asked after last week's email. I would say the person's name, but you never know whether they want to, so we'll just we'll leave it anonymous. Um, but thank you for your email, person who sent this in. Um, making the point that maybe in Australia we don't have as many clashes that you might see in the US. This person mm -hmm. said, yes, there is sort of cultural stuff happening here, but 
perhaps in the everyday is not the same because Australians diffuse a lot of stuff with comedy and and humour. I don't know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, no, that never <laughs> happens on this podcast. You know, we're straight into it um, from the get-go. Um, so there's this sense where different cultures might have spaces where you diffuse the differences. Yes. One example is that, say, in the Middle East, you have different people from different ethnic, religious backgrounds and a sort of coping space is actually the marketplace mm. where people may trade and deal. Yeah. Now, if they were going to sit down and talk about religion, it could get into a big big fight, but then dealing in this person trading with that person is actually a way of having a space where you deal with stuff and you deal with differences and you have this sort of exchange. Now, I would call that a heuristic. So a heuristic is something that you learn, which is a coping strategy, which is not always perfect, but it's mm. a way of dealing with the difficulty. It's like a, a um, you guys were telling me about the lights, that you just realized that the lights in here, actually, you realized that you could bend them, but you'd sort of jerry-rigged some solution earlier. Is that correct? <laughs> oh, we just you made just do without- You're just us for our stupidity. <laughs> we're we're so, professionals here. Yeah. We just discovered that they can do something we didn't know they could do. But yeah. until you realised that they ha- they could actually bend and you could put them on the right angle, you'd had some solution that you just uh, had made up. Yeah. Yeah. Other we MacGyvered it. You other, MacGyvered it. That's yeah. a good way of putting it. Mm. So a heuristic is a MacGyvered <laughs> answer <laughs> to some difficulty. You know. So and again, Australia is a really humour based culture. And I think that the person who wrote in, one of our subscribers, thank you again, um, is correct that we use that to diffuse difficulty. Totally. Um, and all different cultures have these. Um, but what's really interesting is that our culture is shifting from these sort of heuristics and these heuristic spaces mm. where differences can coexist because you use humour or you sort of, you know, like, like think about two people who are don't speak the language but they use sign language or, you know, they're sort of pointing to yeah, stuff. Yeah, you find you know, your way around it. Um, find your way around it in a different country. But we're now moving from this sort of heuristic approach to pluralism to into the civilizational space. And one of the things that marks the civilizational space is, and there's lots of new words here, but don't be afraid of new words. New words lead us into new concepts, is that it's now like ideologically maximalist. Well, let me say that again. Sounds very complex. <laughs> We've moved from heuristic spaces into ideologically maximalist um, uh, thinking. So, for example, you go from us, you know, from different spaces, we're trying to, through humor, diffusing something, mm-hmm. we're trying to MacGyver our way through it to use your language there to, no, I utterly refuse to compromise with you until you accept what I see of the world. I'm yeah. not going to do sign language with you. Now, if I speak French and you speak Portuguese, I utterly refuse to speak to anyone who doesn't speak French and you need to le- learn French. Yeah, which is just a, a wall, isn't yes. it, between yes. two people or between two groups. Um, and so it's this it's this shift that we're seeing all throughout our culture. And in some ways what happens is, is as our culture has got more complex, you think that we would more use more heuristics. But as we've gotten more complex as a culture, more pluralistic, more problems come up. Mm. And so therefore we try and find these easy solutions to deal with them um, because we actually are struggling with complexity and we don't want to completely fall into relativism mm. where we don't have any values. And so we try and have these maximalist answers, but then they just create more complexity. Okay. There's a lot to unpack here. Mm. Can I take us back a few steps? Yes. Um, and just get your clarification on a couple of terms. Yes. So we began the podcast talking about civilizational states. We, we yes. spoke about them last week and you've – 
moved into referring to civilizational spaces. Yes. Is that a deliberate choice? What is what do you mean by that? Yes. So what we're seeing is civilizational states are emerging in the world. Yep. Um, but also that is also playing out at a national level. Mm-hmm. It's playing out at a local level. Mm-hmm. It's even playing out in families and even within individuals. Yeah. Where what you've got is you've got all these competing claims and these grand stories are now operating everywhere. Um I've spoken about before, I think, on the podcast that during the Hong Kong protests, mm-hmm. just not far from here in Box Hill, which is you know, a very Chinese ethnic area of lots of Chinese Australians, um, you saw posters go up where the different sides were sort of competing with each other, the sort of mainland yeah. aligned um, um, sort of groups versus the Hong Kong protest aligned groups. And so there was a civilizational st- a space. Now, would you say Box Hill is a civilizational state? No. But what's happening with, I think, China moving towards a civilizational state or always being a civilizational state then begins to affect another uh, space. In culture wars, another way to describe culture wars is actually their battles over civilizational spaces. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, So it's almost, it's a bit like a diaspora, right? Yes, yes. Um, Another example is, you know, I was talking to someone who was working in government and had been in government for years in here in Australia, very politically correct environment, lots of, you know, the HR department sort of run everything, really keen on, you know, equity and inclusion and so on and used to that sort of civilizational space of those values. That person then moved to the, the private sector into the corporate world and was just shocked in, and the language was, I was literally like I was moving to another world or another universe. Mm. So even you could have in a, in a Western city, one office block where on one floor, you've got people operating out of one sort of civiliza- civilizational space and then on the floor below, you know, so you may have this very sort of, you know, government driven HR, um, you know, sort of NGO ethic and then two floors below, there's a finance company which is all about greed and profit and it's like the Wild West. So you've got these different civilizational spaces now inhabiting all across the West, which creates a very different environment. Mm. And so partially you see this in the culture wars. What makes the culture wars more intense is the inability of both sides to compromise. Yeah, okay. And so it just becomes war. So war is diffused through, I mean, let's look in Ukraine at the moment. There's continual hope for for diplomacy. Mm-hmm. Diplomacy is when people sit down. Diplomacy in war requires compromise. Yes. What we're seeing at the moment is an ideological escalation mm. where people are like, I utterly, you know, I'm going to cancel you or I refuse to even sit down with you because until you fully accept the terms that I have. Yeah. Uh, and so it is then continual conflict. And that's a sign that we've shifted from a pluralistic world yes. where you have these little heuristics to work yes. stuff out to now a world where you can have civilizational states clashing. And then, you know, in the US now, just before Thanksgiving, you get all these articles about how to talk to your relatives about politics without turning <laughs> into a fight. That's an example of a civilizational space coming to the dining table. Yes. So um, thank you for clarifying um, those terms. You to take us back to what you were sort of specifically talking about. Um, you mentioned the term and you repeated it: ideologically maximalist. Yes, which is quite fun to say. Yes, um, and you kind of picked up on it a little bit in your description of uh, what uh, is typical of a um, civilizational space. What? How do? How are we seeing these ideologically maximalist uh, ideas come forth? in our spaces, in our immediate spaces. Let, let me give an example, and this will sort of tie us into um, uh, the next um, point I wanted to make, which yep. 
Um, in, I think it was the 15th or uh, maybe the 15th century, I think 16th century, I think it was, um, the Mughal Empire came into India mm-hmm. and um, they were basically sort of Persian Islamic um, empire that came down into India and basically conquered large parts of, of, of India. And um, there's a particular Hindu holy city, Ayodhya, and in that city there is a place where many Hindus believe the god Rama was born. On that site, um, a mosque was built. Now you think about the sort of clashes between, um, uh, you know, you think of Islam, which is, you know, there's only one God, it's Allah. You know, you can't even, you know, often uh, Islamic culture has not even had pictorial images of people because mm. it has this real reversion against, um, revulsion against um, uh, idol making. Yep. Then you think of Hinduism where you've got, you know, countless gods mm. and lots of um, idols. So very different sort of, um, yes. uh, you know, ideas. For a long time, they were sort of trying to work out how to do stuff. India, you know, in 1947 becomes independent and they're trying to work together and there's all these compromises in the courts going backwards. Can the Hindus come to this site on this particular holy day? Can they put idols over in that bit? There's all these sort of heuristic compromises they're trying to work out. As again, India begins to move more towards a civilizational state and with the ascendancy of sort of Hindu nationalism, the Hindu right, um, something happens in 1992 where basically this sort of Hindu nationalist mob comes in and completely dismantles the entire, rips down the mosque. Mm. And it becomes this absolute flashpoint within within in India. And I think over 2,000 people were killed in writing all across the country. Wow. So that's a moment where it's like, we're not even going to compromise with you. We're not going to come to a solution. We're going to absolutely remove you know this, yeah. and you know you see this in in the West. Say in on you know you can see it on the right where you know in Europe we're not going to accept any Islamic culture because all Islamic culture effectively wants to establish Sharia law over the whole of Europe. So mm-hmm. we're not going to have any compromises here, and we've got to say no to anyone coming from that part of the world. You know you can see it on the left that you know it's not just they there may be racism in parts of this these institutions and their systemic racism here it's like the entire sort of you know whole thing is is tainted everyone's tainted and so you see these sort of very maximalist goals but how do you then have compromise in the midst of it mm. so what you see is this 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 language where it's much more ideological it's less practical um and that just creates constant flashpoints in the world so I wonder if it's a if it's a bit like what uh, you mentioned before about how we struggle as humans to deal with complexities, or increasingly as societies dealing with um, complexity, we have an inclination as humans, either individually or as a society, to reduce things down to stereotypes, things that we don't understand, things that are too nuanced, things that have grey areas. We reduce down to a bite-sized piece that we can understand and we can look at from all the different perspectives and we're like, yeah, we know what this thing is and we know that we don't like it, so mm. out you go. And as you're acknowledging, it doesn't have any room for for complexity or nuance or that, yes, this person is representing a horrible thing but this person standing next to them that appears to be representing the same thing actually doesn't. And, mm. um, yeah, we, we do have a real problem with grappling with complexity. And And what's interesting is I think that, if you, if you begin to look at this, and let's return to the example I just gave from India. Mm. That was a temple and it was two holy spaces. So it was a holy space to Hindus and a holy space to Muslims. Yes. And on the same ground. Mm-hmm. And I think actually the fact that that's a temple is really telling. What is a temple? A temple is a place where if you look at the sort of biblical sociology of a temple, that it's actually a place where 
anything that is sinful could not go into. There was clear lines around the Jerusalem temple, mm -hmm. um, the idea that, you know, the tabernacle, these places where someone had to ritually clean themselves before they entered into this place. And the high priest could only go into the holiest of holies on one day a year and had to like, you know, purify themselves. Uh, the same principles at play here. So I think mm. what's happening is this is actually a religious impulse. So, you know, for example, um, you know, we talked about then, you know, it might be the people saying, um, you know, that group over there, you know, this this problem amongst this minority of the group or even, you know, a large percentage of the group, but therefore everything is, un is tainted in that group. It's yes. actually a way of dealing with sin. And so instead of like, uh, it's actually a kind of religious response. Yeah. Again, if we go back to, you know, to Trillian, you know, some say he's misquoted, but, you know, said that, you know, the cross is always stuck between, you know, just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, the cross is always, you know, uh, exists between irreligion and religion. So mm -hmm. almost pluralism was almost irreligion. It's just license, liberty, you know, do what you want, man, whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. You religion, do you. you do you, but then religion is like you do what I'm doing in an yes. extreme, but yeah, done yeah. through human human form. Uh -huh. So what this is, is actually this religious impulse, whether it's a Hindu nationalist in India or someone saying, okay, there's there's these systemic problems in institutions. And instead of seeing the nuance, like, okay, well, how do we then have a way of dealing with systemic Ill, mm -hmm. you know, issues in that institution? It's all bad or no, no, forget it. There's no systemic problems. There's nothing bad. So you've got these two extremes yes. at the moment. And so, you know, I actually think what this does is it shows us that in this shift from pluralism, you know, and heuristic spaces to this civilizational spaces or maximalist spaces, that actually what that shows is we move from a sort of chill out, irreligious, libertine culture mm. to temple culture. So what civilizational mm. spaces are, ultimately they're religious. Mm -hmm. So this is showing us this, this shape. So what I would say is that this is helpful for us with discipleship because we see more clearly the spiritual landscape in a civilizational space. How? So the temples are revealed. Okay. When no one cares and everyone's just in a you do you type pluralist reality, there actually is values hidden under the surface. Yeah, now, which, a, which we talked about. Yes. Yeah. Now there's a really interesting article uh, in the paper last uh, in the last few days, and it was written by a young, uh, it was in our local Melbourne paper, and it was written by a young sort of uh, writer in her 20s. And she was basically saying how Ukraine had forced young Australians, but I think this is applicable to anyone around the world, mm -hmm into asking the question of what they would die for. And in the mm. article, she was saying how she'd grown up seeing the West as inherently wrong and imperialistic and bad, and it was filled with patriarchy and racism, et cetera, et cetera. So she spent all her energy sort of deconstructing it. But now she's faced with seeing Ukraine, which is being defended as the West yeah. by people, facing an enemy, and part of her was conflicted because she was all of a sudden forced to say, well, maybe there's some stuff in there that's worth fighting for. Mm. So she actually got pushed from a civilizational maximalist space yes. to go, maybe there's actually nuance here. Yes, there is, the West has been imperialistic. Yes, yes, there are elements where, the, you know, patriarchal uh, elements have shaped the West. But then maybe there's some stuff here actually worth dying for. And in comparison to what Putin's doing, mm. Putin's civilizational space, maybe actually when I see these young Ukrainians who look like her, her age, fighting, you, know, yeah. you can see it was actually triggering something in her. We're like, well, what would I actually fight for? And what I realized is the shift from what I'm against to what I'm for. Yeah. So in that moment, that's when a temple is revealed. If you think of a temple is what you worship, a temple is symbolic of authority, what you worship. Yeah. So in that moment, she's like, 
I've been, you know, taught by university, taught by the tenor of the last 20, 30 years growing up and being a writer in the space that she obviously moves in. We're here to deconstruct, but now she's like, yeah, I'm deconstructing, but what do I actually want to leave standing? Yes. So she's been tearing down the mosque, but then like, well, what am I going to build in its place? Or what do I leave standing here? So what's happening in discipleship? To bring this back to discipleship, this means discipleship is more challenging. You're discipling your people. Stuff's continually coming up. Mm. You know, you're talking about discipleship and that's running up against individualism. It's running against strong gods around money or politics or whatever it may be. And that's challenging. So a lot of people listening to this are like, man, I'm exhausted just doing that and have noticed that shift in perhaps 10 years ago or even felt like five years ago where you're mm. doing a discipleship program and everyone's sort of happy because it's in the UDU period. Yeah, yeah. Now that those strong gods were still underneath the surface, but now in this much more continuous contested, contentious space, what it means is the temples are appearing. Yeah. And that actually means that we're now doing it more in a more realistic fashion. Yeah. The true landscape is revealed. And so discipleship is much more possible. A genuine discipleship is much more possible when people's true sources of worship and authority, their temples on a smaller scale are mm -hmm. revealed because then they have to then ask the question, does what is being worshipped in this temple which has been revealed, whether that's the ideology of my life, the ideology of a civilizational state, how does that actually, does that align with the worship of one true God? Does that come under the Lordship of Christ? So that's actually an advantage that we need to reframe in this moment. And I guess in, in terms of, of leading people, uh, like putting those questions out on the table for them to yes. grapple with, the people that you're leading um, are going to be really important as we go forward. It's a much more honest conversation. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Thank you.